Well, good morning. My name is Nick. In case we haven't had a chance to meet, I want to welcome you to worship. Hey, today is Trevor Miller's birthday. Did you know that? Yeah. So if you see Pastor Trevor, do me a favor, give him a hug and make sure it's awkward, like big, awkward hug, and tell him happy birthday. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7. If you want to open your Bibles there, go for it. We're kicking off a brand new series this weekend called Fixer Upper. And I think it's safe to assume that the majority of us in this room, we have heard of this show. Am I right? Make some noise. Let me know you're out there. Yes, okay. I think it's also probably safe to assume that a lot of us love this show. Am I right? Yeah? Of course, Fixer Upper follows husband and wife, Chip, Joanna, Chip and Joanna Gaines, and their house flipping exploits. That's, that's dangerous. Be careful. House flipping exploits whew, in Waco, Texas, right? And there are all sorts of reasons why we love this show. I mean, it is, it is unbelievable popular. In fact, it is the most popular show in the history of HGTV. Over 20 million people have viewed in this past season alone. It's like, it's like the, you know, the Lay's potato chips of television. You can't just watch one episode. Like, how many of you have gotten sucked into, like, a fixer-upper marathon? You know, Saturday afternoon, right, you're folding laundry. Start off with one episode. Next thing you know, it's time for dinner, Right? suck you right in. There's all sorts of reasons why we love it. I mean, of course, there's Chip and Joanna, right? What's not to like about these two? I've had so many times where I'm watching the show and I, you know, I thought to myself or I've said it out loud. I'm like, if they would just meet me, we'd be like best friends, right? <laughs> Funny thing is you probably thought the exact same thing too, right? They're easy for us to love. Then of course, there's the skill. I mean, they're unbelievable at what they do. Here, here's some of the examples of, of houses that they've, they've renovated. Look at that. That's amazing. It's beautiful. Yeah. And then, of course, here we have the infamous shiplap, right? I mean, they have made shiplap cool. They've started a shiplap craze. In fact, 55% of houses in the United States have a wall with shiplap on it or are planning to have one. I totally made that up. It's not true. I don't know. <laughs> but there are shiplap t-shirts, right? You can actually buy one. They're amazing at what they do. But, you know, I think behind the reason why we love this show so much and shows like it is because you and I, we love a good before and after story. Right? We, we love watching a dilapidated old house get transformed into a beautiful home. We love a good fixer-upper story, a good before and after story. We love to see change and transformation take place. And I think if we're all really honest, we also want to believe that that's possible for us, that we can experience change. We can experience transformation. It's interesting. Every single year, there's this new crop of self-help books, of life improvement books that sit at the top of the bestseller lists every single year. And this tells me that human beings, we long for growth, for change, for transformation, to move forward in our lives. And I bring this up because at the heart of our gospel is, of course, the good news of God's complete and total forgiveness for all the ways that we've blown it, right? But at the same time, the gospel also speaks about the possibility of transformation, of change. In fact, last weekend on Easter, we celebrated resurrection. And the scriptures tell us that resurrection has opened the door for you and I to experience new birth. Y'all say new birth. You see, new birth declares that today doesn't have to be like yesterday, that things can change, that you and I can change, that because of God's grace, 
through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be transformed. And so for the next seven weeks, we're going to roll up our sleeves. We're going to tear out some of these dilapidated parts of our lives. And collectively, we're going to engage in a total life renovation. How do you feel about that? You all right with that? Well, here in Matthew chapter 7, this passage that we just had read to us, it comes to us at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Right? This is like Jesus' greatest hits. Right? Sermon on the Mount is, is probably the most influential sermon ever preached. Right? It starts in chapter 5, and it finishes here in chapter 7. And Jesus wraps this whole thing up with a parable about these two different houses. And the thing is, these houses actually have a lot in common. In fact, they have a lot more similar than they, do, than they have differences. I mean, there's no reason for us to think that the houses look any different, right? Or that there was a, a different level of craftsmanship that went into each and every one of them. At the same time, both of these houses experience a storm, don't they? Where you build your house doesn't have any influence on whether or not a storm's coming. Storm happens to both. I mean, conflict, struggle, difficulty, tragedy, life is an equal opportunity experience. Can I get an amen to that? It happens to all of us, right? The thing that separates these two houses from one another, it's only one thing, it's their foundation. It's where they have been built. One is built on the rock and the other is built on the sand. This one thing makes all the difference. This morning, I wanna talk about the importance of having a true foundation. True foundation. You see, in the life of a house, the foundation is absolutely paramount. I mean, if your foundation is off, it's going to show up in all sorts of weird ways. You're going to see cracks in your walls. You're going to see cracks in your ceilings, even to the point where like windows and doors won't close properly, all because of what's taking place underneath the house, all because of what the house is built on. And when it comes to renovating a home, I mean, I'll know a thing or two about that. When it comes to renovating a home, all the paint in the world will not fix or cover up a foundational issue. Not going to fix it that way. The same is true with our life as well. And if you were to trace all of your dysfunction, you got some of that? Some rough edges, some frustrations, those things about us that, man, when am I ever going to get this right? You got some of that in your life. Think about it. Bring it to the front of your mind. If you were to trace all of this to its root, I guarantee you, you know, you'd find a foundational issue. It goes to the core. Yet you and I, we just want to keep slapping pain on it, right? We just don't want to see it. We don't want to think about it. We just want to keep ourselves busy enough, distracted enough. But the thing is, if we want to experience change, and I believe that we do, no matter how many times we've tried and we've failed, no matter how frustrating it is, no matter how much despair we experience, I guarantee you, we all still want to experience change. There's a reason why best-selling best books every year are self-help books. We want to experience change. If we're going to experience change and we've got to roll up our sleeves, we've got to go to the foundation. We've got to go to the core. That's what I want to talk about this morning. The first thing I want to say, I want us to take our time with this. We're not going to rush through it, even though some of it seems really obvious. First thing we've got to realize is that every life needs a foundation. Every life needs a foundation. What I mean by a foundation is it's a grounding center. 
It's sort of this place from which we live and we move. It's a place from which we make our decisions. We determine our priorities. We set our values. Our foundation is, is what determines how you and I, how we see the world, how we really understand ourselves, how we interact with other people. This is what I mean by foundation. The, the famous philosopher, theologian, Soren Kierkegaard, he once said this. He said that the purity of heart, purity of heart is to will the one thing. To will the one thing. This is what he's talking about. It's about being completely devoted, built upon a one thing, a foundation, a grounding center that determines everything else in our lives. Here, folks, is why many of us, or our lives are such a mess. We don't have a foundation at all. We don't have a one thing. You know what we got? We got a lot of things. We're not completely devoted to one thing. We try to be completely devoted to a lot of different things. It's all based on what setting we find ourselves in, isn't it? It's like over here in this part of our lives, well, this is our one thing. But then when I'm over here, this is my one thing. This is what the scriptures call being double-minded. The word literally means a dual allegiance. You're trying, to be, you're trying to pledge allegiance to two different things. It goes on to say that this person's unstable in all their ways. This is why for so many of us, our lives are a mess. We're getting pulled in this direction and in that direction. We're trying to please these people, trying to impress those folks, trying to meet these deadlines, trying to be faithful in these things. All of them are competing. So we get pulled in all sorts of different directions. And the reason why is because we haven't said yes to something big enough that actually can determine our directions. Here's what I mean by this. You see, a life lived well is a life lived on purpose. It's a life lived with intention. If you're getting really honest with me right now, think about this. How much of your life is on purpose? How much of your life is lived with intentionality? And how much of it is reactionary? You're just trying to get by. You're just trying to survive. You're just trying to make it. You're trying to keep all those plates spinning. Am I talking to anybody right now? Can you ever tell if you're being quiet because I'm stepping on your toes? If you're asleep. If you're asleep, somebody do me a favor. Give them a throat punch or something like that. I'm just kidding. How many can relate to that? Would you say that you're living your life right now? Or would you say that your life is living you? And, and when we feel this way, you know, when we're out of our minds crazy busy and we're feeling overwhelmed, well, our first reaction is to think, well, I just got to start saying no to stuff. Okay, well, what are you going to say no to? What thing are you going to let drop? Who are you going to disappoint? Where are you going to slack off a little bit? What are you going to, how do you answer that question? You see, here's the deal. You can't say no until you've said yes. You can't say no to things until you've said yes to a greater thing, until you've identified your one thing, until you've found your foundation from which you can make these decisions. You can't even begin to answer that question. What's your one thing? What's the thing you've said yes to? Because you can't say no until you've said yes. A life lived well is a life lived on purpose, with direction. Earlier in chapter 7, Jesus even paints, he paints a word picture, I think, that gets to the heart of this. Verse 13, he says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. This picture would have been really familiar 
to his first listeners. Because you see, in the, in the city walls around Jerusalem, there were 14 different gates. Right? And most of them led to specific parts of the city. But there was one main gate that was bigger than the rest. So a whole lot of people could fit through it. Right? And the road that led to it was really broad. So a lot of people, again, could travel through this gate. And it would take you to sort of the general beginning of the city. Now, off of that main road, there were all these more narrow paths that led to specific gates that would take you to specific parts of the city. So imagine if you're someone who is traveling to the city of Jerusalem, and maybe it's during a busy time, like a festival. And so all these people, all these pilgrims are heading into the city. They're on that main road. But you know where you want to go. Right? You know what part of the city you want to get to. You had better begin pointing yourself in that direction towards that specific road. Otherwise, you're going to get caught up with the crowd and you're going to miss it completely. This is the picture Jesus is painting here. It's to live our lives with intentionality, on purpose. You know, this, this feels to me strangely familiar. This is what it feels like to drive on 26. I mean, seriously, we, we live in Irmo, and so if we want to go, you know, into Columbia, we jump on 26 East. And everything's fine until you get to, like, past Harvison or Piney Grove, right? Then it's like the Daytona 500, especially if it's during traffic, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about? You get to that point where eventually, like, like 20 comes over to the right. That's a mess, right? The on-ramp and the off-ramp are, like, right next to each other. And so it's like, if you want to get on a 20, it's like an extreme sport, Literally, you white-knuckle it, you scream, and you just go for it, right? Ah! It's a rush, right? So there's that. And then let's say you want to head downtown. What do you got to do? You better get over to the left as fast as you possibly can. So this is the picture Jesus is painting here. It's like if you, you better know, when you get to that part of 26, you better know where you want to go, and you better begin positioning yourself to get there. Otherwise, even though you wanted to head downtown, you're heading to Charleston. living our lives with intentionality, with direction, having a foundation that helps to begin to determine the kind of families we want to have, the kind of marriage we want to have, the choices that we make with our resources, what we decide to give ourselves to, what we decide to care about, how we, how we handle difficulty, how we handle conflict. Is that grounded in one thing or are you double-minded? Because if you're double-minded, you're going to be unstable in all your ways. You're always going to feel like it's out of control. You're not going to get anywhere with it. See, there's some normal that is, in fact, insane. There's some normal that is, in fact, insane. There can be all sorts of people in our, in our culture, so much so that it's that's deemed normal. It's just what you do. It's just how it is. So many people committed to this way of living, but the thing is, it doesn't make it okay. In fact, it's really destructive. There's no life there. Just because a whole bunch of people are heading that direction doesn't mean that it's a, that it's a good idea. The truth is, is, there's no life there. It's insane. I stand before you today, and I declare, I don't want to keep up with the Kardashians. I know that show's like five years old or whatever, five years ago. I know it's not, but... I don't understand how this one family can drive so much in our culture. I got nothing but love for them. Him and I said, nothing but love. I got an ocean of compassion for this. But no, thank you. It's like, man, if my family and I were going to have a reality show, we'd be called, you know, staying behind with the Cunninghams. <laughs> but it's crazy to me. You know, some, some ways of viewing the world are actually narcissistic. 
And some patterns of life, no matter how popular they are, are in fact destructive. And it blows my mind how millions of people can feast voyeuristically on a whole bunch of stuff that's really cancerous for our soul. And there's some normal that in fact is saying, we, we got some of that in our own community that are too, don't we? Right here where we live. You know, I love y'all. My heart breaks sometimes. You watch people in our community. Man, they, they work themselves to death trying to keep up. Trying to look like they got it all together. They're upside down financially, but they got the car, they got the boat, they got everything else everybody else has. They work themselves to death to achieve some quality of life that they aren't even free to enjoy. Who knows what I'm talking about? It may be normal. It may be what you do, but it's insane. And there's no life there. There's absolutely no life there. A life needs a foundation, a grounding center. And here's what I've found. Now, lean in close. I have found the only foundation worth building my life on is Jesus Christ. The only foundation worth building my life on is Jesus Christ. And as a pastor, like when people run into you and you start talking to them, you know, what the question always comes up, so what do you do? Like if I'm on the airplane or I'm in the gym, whatever, what do you do? And I dread this question. Never really sure how to answer it because usually, you know, I tell them I'm a pastor, one of two things happens. Either they try to get as far away from you as fast as possible and they're afraid you're going to try to sell them something. Or they proceed to ask you every single question they've had about God, faith, the Bible, Jesus, since they were like six years old. Right? And a question that we get all the time, that I get all the time, is why Jesus? You've committed your whole life to this Jesus thing. Why? All the other options, all the other things, why did you choose this one? What is it about? And I'll be honest, that's a hard question for me to answer. It's a great question. But it's hard for me. I'm, I'm a bit of a skeptic by nature. I'm analytical. All my favorite things right now used to be my least favorite things. This is how I am. I'm that guy, right? I'm annoying sometimes. I question everything. I have a lot of questions about our faith. It's not easy to believe. We just celebrated last week, right, the core of our faith. And I believe this. It's a conviction of mine. We believe a 33-year-old rabbi came back from the dead. Sometimes that sounds a little crazy to me. It is. You know the one thing I'm most sure of, though, in the midst of all this? Here's the one thing I'm most sure of. The way of Jesus is the most beautiful way to live. That's usually how I answer that question. The way of Jesus is the most beautiful way to live. A life of forgiveness. A life of peace. A life of contentment. A life of generosity. A life of sacrifice. It's the most beautiful way to live. It isn't the easiest way to live. But it's beautiful. Jesus even says, he says, wisdom is proven by its fruit. You want to know if something's wise? If you, want, you want to know if something's life-giving? If it's worth building your life around? Look at its fruit. What kind of fruit does it produce? And so me, when I step back and I look at the world that we live in, the beautiful mess that, is, that it is, our world is beautiful. It's breathtaking. At the same time, it's kind of busted up. But when I look at the world that we live in, and then I read through the Sermon on the Mount and I look at the teachings of Jesus and I apply those teachings to the world that we live in, man, what a wonderful world that would be. I'm talking about forgiving other people, loving our enemy, turning the other cheek, being generous, living without anxiety, not judging one. Could you imagine that world? 
You take the teachings of Jesus, you apply, oh, what a beautiful world that would be. This is why, personally, I'm convinced Jesus is, is who he says he is. Why he is God with skin on. It's because Jesus is not the kind of God human beings make up. I mean, Jesus says to us in Matthew, he says, hey, if somebody hits you, you know what I want you to do? Turn the other cheek. To which conventional wisdom goes, are you kidding me? We laugh that off. No, if somebody hits you, you hit them back even harder. Or if somebody takes something from you, Jesus says, I want you to give them even more. What? You got to be kidding me. This is nonsense. No, if somebody takes something from you, you take even more back from them. I mean, Jesus is not the kind of God, human beings. We don't like this kind of God. We like the kind of God who tells me, you know what? I'm on your side. I hate everybody you hate. I love that kind of God. Jesus comes along and says, you know what? I want you to love your enemies. Ugh. No. <laughs> how about that? Tell me, how's the world's wisdom working out for us? Is it getting us anywhere? It's like it's the same junk over and over and over again. See, Jesus is not the God we want. You know what he is? He's the God we need. I'm convinced that Jesus Christ is the only foundation worth building our lives on. But make no mistake, Jesus intends for us to build our lives on him. He intends to be our foundation, our one thing, our grounded center. I mean, here in Matthew chapter 7, this parable he tells at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, by the way, Jesus isn't making like casual advice, right? He's not Dr. Phil. He's not life coach here. I mean, Jesus is revealing to us the deepest truths about what it means to be a human being. What's it look like to live into the kingdom of God? What's it look like to, to wring the fullness out of this beautiful life that God has given you? What does that look like? He's showing it to us. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he gives this parable. He tells this story that forces the listeners to wrestle with this simple question. So what? What are you going to do about all this? How are you going to respond to this? What's going to be different in your life as a result of what you've just heard? Are you going to build your house on the rock? Are you going to actually take what I've told you and put it into practice? Is it going to be your foundation? Is this what's going to determine how you live and what you do? Or... Are you going to shake my hand on the way out of worship and tell me, great sermon, a smile, but go on about your business, not changing anything, building your lives on the sand? I mean, Jesus' intention, his desire, is that he would, in fact, be our foundation. See, Jesus is very concerned, very concerned with our life right here and right now. And what bothers me sometimes is I feel like for a lot of people, their commitment to Jesus has very little to do with here and now. You know what it's about? It's about there and later. It's all what happens to us after we die. For many of us, we sign up. I'm following Jesus. It means I said this prayer. Now I just need to sit back and relax. And when I die, I have to float off to heaven. So for a lot of folks, the gospel is about Jesus' birth, his death, his resurrection. My question is, what about everything in between? Why did Jesus bother preaching the Sermon on the Mount? I got news for you. Jesus is very concerned with your here and now life. What you do right here and now matters. It matters a lot. Jesus believes it's possible for you and I to live a beautiful life right here and now before 
death. That sounds pretty good to me. But Jesus intends to be our foundation for us to live our lives around who he is. My question for us then, if Jesus is concerned with our here and now life, what's our here and now, here and now life say about our allegiance to Jesus? And if you were to look, if somebody were to watch and see what you give your time to, how you interact with the people around you, how you handle adversity, what you do when you're angry, what you do with your resources, what you choose to care about. People were to watch that, what would they say about your allegiance? Who or what is your allegiance actually to? It's a tough question, isn't it? Let's sting a little. I've been dealing with this all week, by the way. So this is like therapy for me. I'll get to share in on it. But what does your here and now life say about your allegiance to Jesus? I grew up in Indiana. This country. Y'all are Southern. You don't know anything about country. Country is very different, right? And I would notice that a lot of my friends' parents, they would decorate their houses with like old farm equipment. Is this still popular to do? Like washboards, you know? Like old vintage farm, farm stuff. Make like tables out of wagon wheels. You know what I'm talking about? Like a butter churn over in the corner of the family room. Just think about inside of a cracker barrel, okay? This is what an edition of Indiana home living looks like, Okay? And so it's crazy to me that something that was meant to be so practical, these are tools that are meant to be used, somehow gets transitioned to like an antique. Right? It's, it's a decoration. Think about what it would be like for somebody from like 100 years ago to walk into somebody's house now and see them using a butter churn to bring a room together. Like, what, what's this? Right? Something that was meant to be so practical, meant to be used on an everyday basis, gets turned into this sort of antique that we put up on the shelf. Same thing happens with our faith, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus is concerned that our commitment to him would spill over into our here and now life. But what ends up happening is we just celebrate it two times a year, Easter and Christmas. We put it up on the shelf and we admire it from time to time. We may even defend it passionately, but it has very little to do with how we live here and now. See, if we want to experience the kind of life that Jesus has to offer, then we have got to be committed to living life on Jesus' terms. I mean, in this series, we're just getting started, y'all. We're going to deal with some of the major dysfunction in our lives. Some of the big stuff that holds us back. But here's what I know. When we start dealing with that stuff, like when it starts to get hard, this is when we tend to bail on Jesus. Instead, we just appeal to conventional wisdom. We're all about forgiving other people until we have to do it. Am I right? And so we're not going to get anywhere in this series. We're not going to deal with any of the stuff in our lives unless we are first convinced that Jesus, in fact, knows best. Dallas Willard, one of, my, one of my favorite thinkers, authors, Dallas Willard says this, our commitment to Jesus can stand on no other foundation than a recognition that he is the one who knows the truth about our lives and our universe. It is not possible to trust Jesus or anyone else in matters where we do not believe him to be competent. We cannot pray for his help and rely on his collaboration in dealing with real life matters we suspect might defeat his knowledge or abilities. How often does that happen though? We're all about following Jesus until we get into a difficult matter. Like, oh, Jesus, you didn't have anything to say about this. This is above your pay grade. I'm just going to appeal to conventional wisdom when it comes to this issue in my life. It's what we do, right? We're all about Jesus until it gets hard. And then we just fall back to common sense. 
We fall back to conventional wisdom. But see, health and wholeness, here's what I know. Anybody who makes a decision to get healthy in any area of their life, it is going to call you more often than not to do what feels counterintuitive. It is going to require you to move in the opposite direction of your appetites, of your desires, of your prejudice, of your fear, of your insecurity. It's going to feel upside down and backwards. And in those moments, if we're going to move past that, if we're going to get into any new territory, in those moments, we have got to remind ourselves, you know what? What Jesus said is true even when it doesn't feel like it. And so in this moment, I'm going to do the hard thing. I'm going to do the thing I don't really want to do simply because Jesus told me to. I promise you in that moment, if you do that, you're going to experience fruit. There will be something new that happens as a result of that. But do we believe that Jesus knows best? Do we truly believe that? Have we made that decision? And so a fair question to ask in light of this. How much do we know about the way of Jesus? Apart from what the preacher says once a week. You can't build on a foundation you don't know. How much do you know about the way of Jesus? I'm not talking about in a way where you can give me a few bullet points. Can you recall? What does the word say? What does the Sermon on the Mount talk about? How well do you know that? Do you know it? Okay, this is a bad example. Notice how you don't remember anybody's phone numbers anymore because of cell phones. But back in the day, right, you had to memorize phone numbers. You could pull it up in an instant. I think the same has got to be true about how much we know about the truth of the gospel in a way that we don't have to think too hard to recall it. It's like second nature. We know it that well. In the book of Colossians chapter 1, Paul is sharing with this church how he's praying for them. And in verse 9, he says this, My prayer is that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will. This word for filled, it means overflowing. There is nothing left. It is overflowing in abundance. Do we even want that? I mean, do, do we want to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, overflowing with the knowledge, knowledge of God's will? I'll tell you what, I'll be honest first. I don't want that. I just want a little bit of that. In fact, most of them, I just want God's will to supplement my will. I want God to want what I want. So I really don't want all of God. I just want, I just want a little bit of God's will. I'll prove it to you. Here, here's, here's why I'll prove it to you. When do we find ourselves concerned with what God wants? It's usually when we're in a pickle, isn't it? When we find ourselves in a difficult situation and we're not sure what to do. Maybe there's multiple options. Which way do we go? What's the right thing to do? Then suddenly we're concerned. God, what do you want me to do? Where are you, God? Right? I think a fair question is, where, where were we before the pickle? How concerned were we then with understanding what God wants? with understanding how God works in the world. Because I have this funny feeling that if we were committed before the pickle <laughs> on a daily basis of grounding ourselves in our foundation, grounding ourselves in a knowledge of who God is, how God works, and what God wants to see happen in the world, if we were committed to living there on a daily basis, we'd probably find ourselves in less and less situations where we weren't really sure what to do. Are you with me? How much do you know about the foundation? Every life needs one. I believe Jesus 
is the only foundation worth building our lives on. I promise you I'm about to wrap it up. <laughs> There's several things that I think can help us do this. We're just getting started. And these things that I'm going to suggest right now really are what's going to be required of us every week of the series. As we begin to deal with different parts of our lives that are not the way that they should be, we're going to have to do both of these things every week. Some of you are like, I'm not coming back. <laughs> First thing is this. We've got to develop a habit of inspection. Here's what I mean. We've got to be in the habit of identifying, having the courage to admit and name where the, all the places in our lives where we're a bit off, where we're off-centered. Because it's really easy for us to have like a professed foundation and then a real foundation. Right? I mean, I'll, I'll show you, tell you what I mean. We, we profess this belief in a God who loves us unconditionally, or whose first word over, over us is love and acceptance, but the reality is we're shackled by insecurity, aren't we? We live with this fear of what other people think about us or where we measure up compared to everyone else, right? And so we waste so much energy and effort trying to earn what's already ours. We have a professed foundation and we have a real foundation. We have this professed belief in a God who's quick to forgive, yet we have a really hard time forgiving ourselves or the people around us. We, we profess this belief in, in a God who looks like Jesus and tells us to love our enemies. But the truth is our real allegiance lies with political ideologies, partisan political ideologies that demonize anybody who stands on the other side of an issue. Loves make an enemy out of anybody who doesn't share our opinion. We have a professed foundation and we have a real foundation. Profess a belief in a God of abundant goodness that we find ourselves feeling things like envy, resentment when something good happens to somebody else. Is this making sense? Man, we got to name this stuff because usually when it comes to like the real problems in our lives, like the real wounds, we're really good at cleaning it up, defending it. You know, that, I don't have a grudge against them. I'm just giving them what they deserve, right? We clean this up. And again, wherever it gets hard, we got to name it because whenever it starts to get hard, what you and I do is we bail on Jesus and we appeal to common sense. We bail on the kingdom of God, and instead we fall back to conventional wisdom. But if we're going to experience any growth, if we're going to actually take a step forward and change something in our lives, we got to call it what it is in that moment. we got to confess. Confess in the, in the Greek literally means to say the same thing. There's the reality of our situation, and there's a story we tell ourselves about our situation. Confession means to bring those two things in alignment. We're going to have to do this every single week when it comes to dealing with these different areas of our lives. The other thing we have to do is develop a practice of renovation, a practice of renovation. Remember, the emphasis of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 7 isn't, what do you believe? It isn't, how do you feel about all of this? What's the emphasis? What are you going to do with it? How is this going to change anything? What's going to be different about your life when you leave here? Right? I mean, Albert Einstein said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. And some of us, we've been dealing with the same issue over and over and over again. We just wanted to fix itself. What are you going to do differently? How are you going to approach this in a different way? What new practice are you going to add into your life? What's the hard thing that you're going to do? as a result of this. And coming out of this message, if the foundation is so important, what are you doing on a regular basis to ground yourself there? Is there any scripture reading, any commitment to prayer happening in your life right now?
I get tired of talking about that as a pastor, but there's a reason why it's so important. It's not about getting God to like us more. It's about changing the tapes in our heads. The reason why we keep going back to the same dysfunction is because we give in to other voices that aren't God's voice. We buy into other truths that are less than the gospel. Me, for me, spending time in the word is because I know I got about 24 hours until I go back to my same old junk. It's about how long it takes. And so I have to continually wake up every morning and ground myself. What does Jesus say is true about me? What does Jesus say about how I should live my life? What's this look like for you? Maybe a good place to start. Start reading through the Sermon on the Mount. As you go, pick it up, Matthew chapter five. Start there, see what happens. Last thing I'll say. We gotta be okay with beginning in the beginning. And when it comes to change and transformation, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. This is where the show messes us up though, isn't it? You watch Fixer Upper in an hour, they got a junky old house, something beautiful. Anybody that's done renovation projects, you know, it doesn't work that way. It's weeks of hard work. And I've found that if I go to Lowe's or Home Depot one time in a day, I'm going there two or three times in a day because I messed something up, right? The same is true with change in our lives. We're going to mess up. We're going to have setbacks. It's going to be hard. But we have to be okay with beginning in the beginning. And if you're anything like me, it's like I have these big expectations, right? All these things I want to see happen in my life. I wake up the next morning because it's not easy or because it's not the way that I want it to be. I quit. I quit before I even get started. It's like with my health. Here I am again, like a 12th time wanting to get healthy. A year ago, I was healthy. And what's hard is this year, like right now, I know how fast I ran my miles. I know how big my waistline was. <laughs> I knew how much weight I could put up in the gym. I'm not there right now. So the temptation is when I wake up in the morning, I'm like, why even bother? My wife shared with me one time, she said, the crappy workout you got in is better than the one you didn't. It's like this with any area of our life. Sure, wake up tomorrow, you're not gonna be where you wanna be, but you know what? This is where you begin. And discipleship, it's a matter of waking up each morning and doing the next right thing, doing the next right thing, and trusting that we're not doing it by ourselves, but that God is gonna be there every step of the way, not doing it for us, but giving us what we need to do the next right thing. You pray with me? God, thank you so much for the good news of resurrection, transformation, new birth. I pray for all the people in the room right now who just feel like, feel like hopeless still. Because maybe what's in front of them feels so big. Maybe they've been dealing with it for so long. Lord, do what only you can do. Give them hope. Remind them of what we celebrated last week, that the tomb is empty, that you have defeated everything that holds us back. Help us to be faithful in making that our foundation, making that the place in which we live and move and have our being. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray, amen.